Battleship are both, uh, parents just FYI, are both located now in the 300 hallway. Uh, so they will no longer be located in the cafeteria anymore. So they'll be back there uh, for their environment uh, so that they can learn. Uh, thank you, buddy. You're so good to me. I didn't want to hold this thing the entire time. So I appreciate that. So. Psalm 150. The idea that everything gives glory to God and everything praises the Lord. And, uh, you know, there are seven billion, over seven billion people on this planet. And every single one of them, God created and he deserves praise from. Every one of them. Not just you and I. Every single one of them. There are 11,500 different people groups on the face of the planet. 11,500 different people groups of 100,000 or more. 3,150 of these groups of 100,000 people or more have no access to the gospel. They have no one, no missionary, no Christian voice that is engaging them with the news of Jesus. 3,150. 3,150. 4.1 million people live in places where Christianity is 2% or less of the population. That's 4.1 million. And 200 million people live in this world with no internet access, no missionary, no television, where there is absolutely no access for them to hear about Jesus. And they have never heard the name Jesus. 200 million of Christ's creations. And every single one of them need to hear about Jesus. Every single one of them is able to worship God, and he deserves their worship. The question is, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for our church? There was once this guy named Jim who lived back in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, and Jim uh, was very bright, very smart. He, top of his class kind of thing. He lived in Portland, Oregon. During college, uh, he did some short-term mission trips to South America, to Mexico, Brazil, those kind of places. Uh, and it really solidified his heart for the South American people. He began to fall in love with them and do some short-term trips there. He graduated from college, and then he went to uh, Wycliffe Bible Institute, where he uh, spent some time learning how to translate uh, other languages, uh, or unknown languages, so that they can translate the Bible into those languages. He spent a lot of time doing that, solidifying again his love for South American people. Eventually, he made his way down there uh, to a country called Ecuador, met a missionary there, lived with him for a while and learned about the Quechua people. And they lived and served amongst the Quechua people for a good long while. He uh, met his wife in college. She eventually went to go be with him, and they were married right there in Ecuador. Her name is Elizabeth. And so Jim and Elizabeth spent their time as missionaries, and they found out about this tribe called the Uka Indians. Now, Uka stands for, for savage in, Quech- in the Quechua language. They were brutal, savage people. No one had ever engaged them with the gospel before. And so Jim and four of his friends decided they, they built this heart and they just wanted to touch these folks. They wanted to, they believed that the gospel can change their hearts even though they, were, they knew that they were pure savages. 
And so what they would do is they would get in a small airplane and they would uh, circle around their village and they would have this loudspeaker and they would try to communicate with them. They would you know, shout down to them, uh, sharing the gospel, telling them that they were friends, telling them that they wanted to give them gifts. Just wanted, they wanted to meet them. And they did this for several months, just kind of encircling. What they would do is they'd drop different gifts like food and cooking supplies and things down to the people and hopefully just kind of creating some goodwill. Eventually, they got brave enough to land the plane on a strip that they had built only about a mile away from their village. And they made contact, finally, with a few of the Uka Indians. They met a guy that they named George, one of the Indians, and that he was friendly to them. He had some interaction, and after a few days, George asked if he could go up on the airplane. And so they gave him a ride on the airplane. Thinking that this was going to give them some significant goodwill, they kind of pursued forward. The next day after George's airplane ride, the Jim and the four other missionaries showed up a little bit closer into town. They were met by 10 Uka warriors, and they were slaughtered to death at 28 years old. Jim left behind his wife and infant daughter. His name is Jim Elliott. You might know that name. He was a famous uh, missionary. And he bred out of his experience a large missionary movement. It was found after his death in one of his journals. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, why would a man so, had so much promise with a young marriage and a young child, why would he go and do that? Why would he give his life to do that? That's just a crazy question. And doesn't that seem in the back of your mind like, man, that was a waste? (laughs) He could have done so much more. I think Jim knew three things that were very important and dear to him that really caused him to have a passion for these people. And we're going to talk about those three things today. And Isaiah 6 is going to help us out. So if you have a Bible, if you have a phone with version on it, uh, the, all my notes will be there in Isaiah 6, one of my favorite passages. But here's what Jim knew very well. He knew three things very well. He knew the glory of God, he knew the lostness of man, and he knew the hope of the gospel. The glory of God, the lostness of man, and the hope of the gospel. And so we're going to see all of those portrayed in Isaiah 6. Now, if you don't have a Bible, I would love to give you a Bible. We'll have one at our connection table. We'd love to give you a a copy of God's Word. We never want to have somebody without one. But I hope that you'll be able to follow along with me if, if on the screen or on your phone or in your text right in front of you. One of the best passages of the Bible, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is kind of in the middle of your Bible. Uh, It's a prophetic book, uh, and it talks about this. It, it, It catalogs this man's experience as he speaks for God to an Old Testament Jerusalem. It says this in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to one another, And said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I, meaning Isaiah, I said, woe is me, for I am lost. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. So right in this passage, very early on, we see a picture of the glory of God. We see a picture of the glory of God. Isaiah After this moment where King Uzziah... Now, King Uzziah had been the king of Jerusalem or the king of Israel. He had been the king for like 50 years or so. And and he was a good king. He followed the Lord. And the people really trusted him. They they built up a good city, a good trust with him. And and finally, he died. And it was a crisis moment. It was chaos in the city of Jerusalem. Things were not good for the Israelites. And they knew that there was other armies that were going to approach them and possibly try to conquer them. So people were pretty afraid at this point. So Isaiah gets this vision of the king of kings. You see, kings and, kings and presidents, they come and go. But Isaiah gets a picture of the real king. And it's this incredible picture of the weight of the glory and the incomprehensibility of God. I'm not even sure how Isaiah even wrote down these words because he he understood there's just so much going on in this picture. It's probably hard for him to even look at it or even write it down. And so what he sees are these things called seraphs, which are these angelic creatures with six different wings. They're called, seraph means burning ones. They're angelic attendants and they're ablaze basically because they are so close to the king and they are constantly taking in the glory of God and they they can't contain their passion for the holy one. And so their song selection is this regular, it's almost like they can't think of anything greater than just shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And they keep on just going around the throne, singing with great passion, ablaze for his glory. You see, holiness is more than just purity. It's more than just God is just really, really clean. Holiness is an uttermost perfection that our king is without error. He has been without error and completely pure and blameless for all of eternity past and will be for all of eternity future. He's never had a bad thought. He's never had a bad moment. He's never had a bad day. He's never done done a wrong deed. He is pure, righteous, and good all the time, and holiness and his glory are without equal. And so no one prevails against the Holy One of Israel. Now in Isaiah 36, we see a little picture of this. You see, what happened was the nation began to be weaker and weaker and weaker after King Uzziah died. And eventually there was another king, the king of Assyria, who was uh, almost like a Hitler-type person. He was going from city to city to city and destroying everything in its wake. He was trying to conquer everything known. And so the king of Assyria 
uh, was, was gradually gaining more and more troops up to the point where he had 185,000 troops, which is a lot for that day. And he would go from town to nation to nation, completely conquer it, obliterate it, just kill everybody, kill every man, keeping the women and children for his own country. It was terrible, and it was devastating. And here's what's happening in Isaiah 36. That army had completely encircled the city of Jerusalem, and they were in trouble, and they were under siege. And so the king at the time, his name was Hezekiah, also a good and trustworthy king. He told his people, don't worry, the Lord will take care of us. Just trust the Lord. Everything will be fine. Just trust the Lord. And this went out to the, other, to the, to the, the nation of Assyria. They, they were just like, hey, we're just going to trust the Lord. <laughs> and so one of their messengers shows up on the doorstep of Jerusalem. Uh, and Isaiah 36 records what this messenger says to the people. He's shouting at the people. If you can imagine, they're all kind of on the city gates, and, and this person is shouting at them. And he says this, Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. And get this, Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his, his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharavim? Now I'm going to... I'm going to get that one day. Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods, get this, who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? The Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? He comes mocking the Lord of the universe. That's not going to last very long. And he had no idea who he was dealing with. And so God in Isaiah 37 through the prophet Isaiah speaks to the Assyrians and he says this in verse 23. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. In verse 28 and 29 says this, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back the way in which you came. You see this one comes to mock God and God says, I know everything about you. I created you. I know how your mind works and I can put a hook in your nose and you will go where I tell you to go. And so what happens is, is this guy scoffs off, and he goes back to his army, repeats to his king everything that happened. And then that night, they go to bed in their tents outside of the city of Jerusalem. And the scripture records later on in Isaiah chapter 37 that he sends an angel of death into the camp and kills every single one of the 185,000 except for the king. And the king wakes up the next morning and his entire army is dead. The entire thing. He is just, he's standing around in dead bodies. And, he, and the Bible records, so he returned home. Good idea, right? He returns home to his throne room, sits on his throne, and his two sons who are so ashamed of him kill him. The Lord puts a hook in his nose and he will go where he wants him to go. You do not mock the Holy One of Israel. The glory of God is more incomprehensible. The sovereignty is total. And the nations of the world need to know him. The, the African in the bush that stares up at the stars but has never known the name of Jesus, has never heard of God, he needs to know who created those stars. 
Those tribes that worship the earth, they need to know the creator of that earth. Those people who live in oppressed countries where they they are constantly oppressed and they live and die without freedom, they need to know the freedom of Christ. They need to know the sovereignty of God. But there's this problem. And the problem is because it is, is that we are all lost. And Isaiah records this, and so he sees the un- incomprehensibility of God. He sees the, like, it's this, this little picture of the glory of God, the holiness of God. And you would think that, like, what, what Isaiah would say, he would look at God and say, wow, holy smokes, literally, because there's smoke in the passage, right? So, but what does he say? He doesn't say, wow. He says, whoa. Woe is me. And he says, I am lost. As soon as he sees the glory and the holiness of God, he is immediately, he immediately recognizes his own sin in his life. He immediately recognizes that he is unclean, that he is lost and sinful, that in front of a holy and perfect God, he is dirty and wrecked. So he says, woe is me. For I am lost. You see, how he knows this is because in, in the very beginning at the Garden of Eden, when Adam, Adam and Eve sinned against God, it's had this ripple effect throughout all of mankind. And, not, and no, there is no man who has ever been unstained from this sin, save one. The Bible says of mankind that we are, we are, we are sinful that we are alienated from God, that we are cast out from God, that we are slaves to sin, that we are dominated by Satan, and that we, get, we are given over into our sinful desires and sinful choices. And this is not just individually, this is collectively. That the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and that, therefore this leads to our eternal separation uh, from God. And you might say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not that ugly and unclean. Romans 3 puts it very clearly. I think this will be up on the screen. Romans 3, 10 through 18 says this. None is righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And here's the deal. This speaks of us. This isn't this like magical they that doesn't have anything to do with us. This is us. This is you and I. And what this allows us to deserve is eternal separation from God. We don't talk about this a lot, but here's the deal. It's eternal separation with God in hell. And hell is a very real place. Hell is an infinitely terrible and permanent location. For those who do not have a reconciled relationship with God, it is a place where people go. And they are tormented there for all of eternity in a conscience understandable way. They are awake, they're not sleeping, and they never die. So we make fun of it, we make light of it, and we say things like, man, that was a hell of a game, or that was a hell of a song, or I've been to hell and back. 
And just our language speaking that way proves that we have no idea what we're talking about. Hell is a very real place. The Bible speaks about it at length. Where there is no community, there is no relationships. Most people think that you kind of share hell with other people's. No, you are completely alone for all of eternity. You are away from your family. You are away from God. You are completely alone. And there is no rescue and there is no end. That after you have spent two million years there, restless in torment, you are no closer to the end than you are from the beginning. It will never stop. And that is where these people, these 4.1 million people who have no access to the gospel, there's 4.1 million people who live in places where Christianity is less than 2% of the of, of, of the population, that's where they go. That's where they go. And they will be there for all of eternity. And so this is why Isaiah states, woe is me, for I am lost. All of us share this same lostness. I share it. You share it. The man in the bush in Africa shares it. And you might think, you might be asking yourself the question, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God isn't that kind of guy. That's not how my God works. Because here's the deal, because, because here's my question. What about the innocent man in Africa? Will he go to heaven? And my answer to that is yes, absolutely. According to what we see in the scripture, the innocent man in some desolate place, even if he hasn't heard of Jesus, if he's innocent, absolutely, absolutely, that is the truth. According to the Bible, it is the truth. However, remember that whole ripple effect of sin? There is no innocent man. There isn't someone out there who is perfect and righteous like God. All of us have sinned. All of us have seen it. There is not one of us who has ever encountered someone without sin. And so we share that same destination with those around us and even the person who has never heard of Jesus. And that is scary. That, my friend, is bad news. Now, I, when I was in college, um, I told this story before, but it's good here. But um, when I was in college, I would go around different uh, churches and, and preach and uh, it was a lot of fun, and we, we, I would get assigned different churches. And, and one time I got assigned an African-American church. And uh, I had never even been to an African-American church, less preached in an African-American church. And, and, and African-American church is way different than we white people do this, okay? <laughs> and so um, it's, it's really cool because they are extremely excited about the gospel, uh, and they, they let you people know, and it's awesome. And so while, while you're preaching, they talk back to you. It's incredible. It's, it's wonderful, right? And so I'll never forget, this is my first experience with this. There was a guy in the back, he was an older gentleman, and, uh, and, and the entire time I was preaching, he would he'd kind of lean back in his chair, and he would, amen, preacher. I mean, he would, he would say all sorts of things to me, almost after every sentence. It was incredible. It was like this cadence. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. And so, and so when I got to talking about lostness of man and the, the uh, eternity in hell, that kind of stuff, well, and he'd lean back in that chair, and he'd say, fix it, preacher, Fix it. Fix it. 
And he, like, and I, and all, every time after every sentence, fix it, fix it, preacher. <laughs> and then when I started talking about heaven, he was like, hallelujah. <laughs> it was incredible. So sometime when I'm talking about this, somebody shout that out. That'd be great. Okay. So <laughs> all that is the bad news. Here's the good news is that we do have hope of good news, and it is called the gospel. And so as soon as Isaiah sees, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. Immediately God sends one of these seraphim, and he grabs this coal kind of in symbolic form, and he touches the lips of Isaiah. And this is what he says. He says, Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. He didn't deserve that. What did he do? Did he work for a long time? Make sure that God loved him? What did he do? Nothing. God just loved him. It is unwarranted and undeserved. And so how, how is this even possible? How is it possible that a perfectly good and righteous judge like God, how is it possible that he can forgive injustice? That's not part of his character. We have to skip ahead to Isaiah 53 to understand this because someone had to pay for this. Someone had to atone for Isaiah's sin. Someone has to atone for your sin and my sin. Someone has to bear it. It's not like it can just be wiped out without anybody paying for it. God is a just God. It would be unjust if he just said, eh, you know, I don't want to do anything, deal with that anymore. It's over. You know, somebody has to pay for that. Somebody has to bear it. And so in Isaiah 53, we learn who does. It says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now give it to me. Who is him? Thank you. It is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. You see, God, the just one, deals with the injustice by giving his Son. This is the the hope of the gospel. The Son of God takes our place on the cross and receives our penalty, switching places with us. So he takes on our debt. He bears it. While, while we take on his righteousness and goodness. And all this happens at the cross. You see, here's the deal. God hates sin, hates it. He says it numerous times in the scripture. God hates sin. So he pours out wrath, all of this burning desire that we see in Isaiah 6, all of this power, all of this holiness, all of it is poured out in wrath. And what we see at the cross is this beautiful picture of the pouring out of God's wrath and also the pouring out of God's love through his son Jesus, all in the same place. It's good. (laughs) And Jesus bears it all. Because of this sacrifice and our sin is then forgotten and forgiven. It's beautiful. You know, there was once this man who, uh, he, he bought a, he went into a Rolls Royce dealer because he had heard that a Rolls Royce will never break down. And so he goes into the dealer and the salesman convinces him, yes, this car will never break down on you. It will be forever good. And so he buys the car and uh, after using it for a couple years, he 
who's on a long stretch of country road, and sure enough, car breaks down. Calls up the Rolls Royce dealership and says, hey, there's something wrong with my car. You got to come and deal with this. And so what they do is they, uh, they, uh, they send out a helicopter with a mechanic. It's so quick, he jumps out of this helicopter, fixes the car, says, hey, thank you very much, jumps back in the helicopter, see you later, flies off, and the car works fine. Of course, this man thinks, oh, what is the bill going to be for a helicopter visit from a mechanic? It's got to be expensive. So he waits for a little while, waiting for this bill to come in the mail, and it doesn't come. Waits for a little while longer. Finally, he calls the dealership and he says, listen, you guys came out in a helicopter and fixed my car. I need to know what the bill is. It's driving me crazy. And they said, hold on for a second. Let me check. And they came back and they said, sir, we have no record of your car ever breaking down. And so thank you very much. Now that's a ridiculous story. It's probably not real, but it's fun. It's almost as ridiculous as this idea but it's true that God forgives and forgets our sin. Cast it as far as the east is from the west. And so if you're in this place today and you understand the glory of God against the lostness of your soul, there is hope for you. There is a very real destiny of hell in front of you without a reconciled relationship with God. That's not to scare you. That's just reality. And so I desperately want you to know this Jesus that can forgive your sin. So if we consider the cross, we consider Jesus, we consider him switching places for us, the question then becomes, what if all that is true? What if it's true? What if it's true that God is that glorious? What if it's true that we are that desperately lost? And what if it's true that we have the remedy in the gospel? What if all that's true? What if it's true? Do you believe that it's true? Say yes if you do. Then it changes the way that we live our life. Because it gives us a very urgent mission. You see, after Isaiah was cleansed, he sees the glory of God, recognizes his lostness, understands the hope of the glory of the gospel. In verse 8, it says this. It says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send and who will go for us? And then he said very quickly, he didn't have the time to think about it. He didn't even pray about it. He just said, here am I, send me. I'm right here. Here we go. Urgent mission, I got it. I'm right here. Because he was gripped by it. So the call is, who will go? Who will go? There's a man named John Patton. He lived in the 1850s. Uh, He came before his church with a desperate need to go to a tiny string of islands in the South Pacific named the New Hebrides. Now, just years before this, two men named John Williams and James Harris, two missionaries from the London Baptist Missionary Society, had gone to the New Hebrides, and they found out that New Hebrides were cannibals. They found out by being eaten. And so, John Patton heard about their story and their plight, and said, that's where I'm going to go, even the gospel can reach the cannibals. And so he came against some opposition when he told his church, hey, we're going to go. I'm going to go. I need you to send me. There's a man in his church that stand up and openly opposed John going. And he said, cannibals, you are going to go and get eaten by cannibals. To which John Patton said this, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I 
can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day of my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. See, we believe in making disciples of the church of Cane Bay. We've defined what a disciple is by saying that a disciple is one who grows in their relationship with Christ, who gives of their relationship with Christ, and goes for the gospel of Christ. That's what it is. Grow, give, and go. And what we've said about what it means to go is that we go in three different circles. That's why we entitled this whole thing Circles. That's why it says it on your bulletin. We go personally, locally, and globally. Now, we're going to take time over the next two weeks to talk about personally and locally. What that means is personally, we go to our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, people that we have influence over. And locally, we give you a missional community to be a part of so you can bless and serve people in this community. But here, here's what I want to talk about just briefly at the end here. How are we going to go globally? Now, I need to confess this to you because it's important. I don't believe that we as a church have done much to go globally. And that's my fault. And I think that we need to engage. I believe that we need to, as the church at Cane Bay, have more opportunities and connect more with what's happening overseas. I believe that it'd be my wish one day to send more people out like Michelle last week who is going to get an education and then head on her way to Eastern Europe where she can serve in Moldova. I want to send more people out from this church who sacrifice everything and they say, here I am, send me. This is all that I have. I'm giving you everything. And I want to see people do that. So the question is, what do we do now? And this is what we do you're wondering what all of this means, it means that we need to pray and we need to ask God a very specific question. We need to ask this question. How are we called to the nations? Father, I need to know how we are called to the nations. How? Now, it's distinct because I want to make sure you don't understand, misunderstand. It's not, are we called to the nations? That's not the right question, because we are. Jesus said, go make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. It's not us to say whether we do that or not. We obey what Jesus says. And so it's a question of how we are going to go to the nation. So there's a couple things that I want you to think about. I want you to think whether you are compelled to go yourself either in a short-term basis or in a long-term basis. In the year 2016, we're going to have opportunities for you to go on some short-term mission, ter- mission trips. I'm really excited about it. And so when, I, when we come out with announcing what those are and what the costs are, my hope is that you would consider going, that you would take a week off of work or whatever it's going to take and you know, try to raise some money, save some money, whatever you need to do to get yourself to another country where you can be actively involved with missionaries on the ground so that we can share the gospel with people who have never heard. Then you might actually consider... God might believe in your heart, like Jim Elliott, that I need to go permanently. And I would love to see more folks from our church ask the question, is God asking me to give it all? The second thing we can do is we called to give. Now, there's people that are saying, hey, I recognize that I'm not called to go, but I am called to give, and you need to give generously to those who are called to go. If people are going to go in your place, you better give to them and make sure that they are well supplied. And we want to make sure that we do that as a church. Thirdly, 
I want us to be called to connect to the field. Now, I'm going to be introducing to you one of my favorite friends, and I've talked about him and his family before, Stephen and Sarah Dinkins. They're a great family, and they're serving in Nairobi, Africa. We're going to have a lot of opportunity to connect with them over the next couple of weeks, but they're uh, International Mission Board missionaries, and they're doing some great work with Muslims, Muslim people there. And so I want to be engaged with them, and I want you guys to be engaged with them. They're fantastic people. And then lastly, I have a table out in the back. Uh, it's for Compassion International. Now, some of you might know about Compassion. Uh, it's one of the best Christian agencies that do missions across the world. They have 28 different countries that they do missions in. They connect with the local church, and then they supply them. They, they, what they do is uh, if you were to get um, involved with them, what that would mean is that you would get one of these little... Uh, one of these little packets. It looks just like that. It has a picture of uh, a little boy or a little girl on it. This one is uh, Saul Lopez Perez. And what, what Compassion does is it links you up one-on-one. It is a one-on-one relationship. There is no other person that would have this kid. And essentially what you would give is $38 a month to make sure that he has food, clothing, shelter, education, hygiene, medical, and he has an opportunity to hear the gospel. It's a fantastic organization. Here's the deal. Here's the fun part. Is you get to interact with him or her. You can send him letters and he'll send you one back. Your kids can send colored pictures to him and he'll send, you some, he'll send stuff back. It's like a pen pal relationship. And after a couple of years of you being faithful to this, Compassion will email you and say, hey, would you like to go see him? And so this isn't some mysterious kind of thing. This is an opportunity for you to connect with somebody, to get them out of poverty, to give them what they need so that they can hear the gospel clearly. Compassion has seen thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of kids come to know the Lord in this way. We have a bunch of little packets out there on the table. Only take one of these if you're absolutely serious about doing this. Take one of them, you fill it all out, you mail it to them. It's really, really simple. But it's a way that you can connect with somebody to make sure that they're hearing the gospel. Every single one of these, these boys and girls on that table do not have a sponsor. They don't have somebody that's already providing these services for them. And so it's a very small way that you can get engaged with somebody in the nations. Okay? So I want you to, I want you to think about connecting in that way. You remember our friend Jim Elliott? I'll wrap up this way. Remember our friend Jim Elliott that got slaughtered by the Uka Indians? Elizabeth, his wife, stayed there. She continued Jim's mission. She stayed there, and with other missionaries' help, they reached out to George. They found him, and they eventually led the entire tribe of Uka Indians to Jesus. And Elizabeth Elliot was able to baptize and see the very men who killed her husband and four of his friends come to Jesus. That's amazing. Only in God's economy does that happen. So the question is for you, how are you going to answer that call? Here I am, send me, and we're going to see what God does through what you are going to give. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You send your people, and you are sending us. This isn't a question of if we are supposed to go. It is, this, it is a question of how you are sending us. Every single man, woman, and child on the face of this planet needs an opportunity to give you glory. And we want to be a church that's faithful to that mission so that every man, woman, and child can hear that gospel. You've given us a mission to reach the nations, and we are now going to be faithful to it in probably just a very small way, Father. But we're going to join and connect with others who are on the ground 
We're going to join and connect with others who are really doing this on a full-time basis. And Father, I do pray for that family right now, that young man, that young woman who in my, just in this sermon is feeling a call right now to go internationally and spend their life sharing the gospel. I pray that we would be a church that would be willing to send them out and give them all the resources that they need. And Father, if there is one in this room that the gospel has touched them this morning, they recognize your glory, they recognize their own lostness, and they know that they need you, I pray that they would respond this morning. That they would say, here I am. I don't even know who I am, but I want to respond to Jesus. And I want to be forgiven. Father, I pray for that person to have courage. Step out this morning. We love you, Jesus. Amen. If you've heard that call, today was a lot about what the gospel is. It's going to be foundational for our next couple weeks. If you have never come to a relationship with Christ, I want to talk to you about that so that you can walk out of here in peace and not and, and not thinking so desperately of yourself. Just stand up, let's worship together.